Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 22. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, which is like seeing Christ's glory shine greater and greater uh, with every account recorded. Uh, Every time we see Jesus acting, we ought to say at the end of it, if I don't have Him, I have nothing. And uh, we just went through the parable of the soils, uh, which was dealing with hearing. There's four different ways to hear the gospel, to hear Christ. Only one way is a type of hearing that saves. Uh, The three ways a person can hear in an unsaving way are those who hear superficially, those who hear in such a way that uh, they don't see Christ as their ultimate hope, but the riches of the world actually capture uh, their hearts. And there's a way to hear that only wants to hear if life goes good uh, for them. But Luke wants us to know that the gospel shines light into our lives, which reveals ugly things, but then shows us Christ. And his desire is that we would hear Christ in such a way where we desire to be exposed in the light of his glory and hope in his mercy. And we're going to see that again today. And uh, we're going to look at verse 22. I'm not going to begin by reading it because we're going to go through it verse by verse. And uh, before we jump in, I want us to consider a few questions. The first question is this. Do you want to be with Jesus? Seriously consider that question for yourself. Do you want to be with Him? We're going to see four different uh, groups of people at work. And these two passages we're going to look at, we're going to see the disciples of Christ. We're going to see demons. We're going to see people that are called the Gerasenes. They live on the uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee. And then we're going to see a demoniac, a man possessed by demons. All of them are in the presence of Christ. And one of them responds in a way that is good. Only one of them says, I want to be with you in these accounts. So I want you to consider that question. And my charge to you is this, that you might leave here believing that Jesus is God and man. Not 50% God, not 50% man, but fully human and fully God. In fact, if he's not, he can't be our Savior. A full man sins, and if we're going to have a sacrifice, a full man must pay the price in our place. And in this passage, we're going to see God's or Jesus' divinity and his humanity. And I pray that you see he is the one who has power over all creation and that you'll trust in him alone. And then the two other questions are this. How do you respond to Jesus' presence? And where is your faith? Jesus asks this question in our text. One of my favorite teachers, Bible teachers, is a man named Matt Chandler. Uh, He might just be a few years older than myself. And several years ago, maybe... I don't know, it's probably seven years ago now, 
He was diagnosed with brain cancer. Has a wife and young children. Uh, I believe it was third stage brain cancer. And I remember hearing him preach a message out of Ecclesiastes. And he talked about the moment he was told what he had. And he said, I wish I could tell you I was like the Apostle Paul and said, oh, praise God, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But he said uh, his sanctification was not quite there yet. That in the moment he felt like he was falling. Everything about his life seemed not secure for the moment. But he said it wasn't long and he landed on something. And what he landed on was a rock. And was solid. And it wasn't long that he was okay, even with the diagnosis. And his question was this. What are you standing on? What's your foundation? When the carpet of your life gets ripped out from under you, where do you land? If you build your life off your spouse and your spouse dies suddenly, how far will you fall? If you build your life on your whatever occupation you have or on the money that you've accumulated or your bank account, what happens when it flies away in a moment? Where will you land when life gets crazy. This is the danger of building our lives on anything other than Christ. All the safety and security you feel on this day is all in your imagination. You might feel healthy this moment, but you can't guarantee you're going to be alive in the next five seconds. In fact, the Bible says that all man is is the breath that is in his nostrils. Meaning, once God gives you that, you're reliant on Him again for your next one. That's who we are in reality. We fool ourselves and think, well, here's my plan for life and here's my security but in reality, all those things that secure us other than God can be taken from us in a moment. Well, we're going to look at two incidences in Christ's life, the disciples' life, that are, might be familiar to you when Jesus calms the storm and when he casts the demons out of the demoniac and casts them into the pigs and the pigs run off the cliff into the ocean and die. They're both stories you remember. If you were asked to take a test on what stories you'd remember, you'll probably remember those stories because they're shocking. They're vivid. And the reason why we're doing them together is that's how they happened. When the disciples got off the boat, the next event happens uh, immediately. And I want us to consider how people responded to Christ and how we respond to Him. Look at verse 22. One day, one day He got into the boat with His disciples and He said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Now, this lake is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's a large freshwater lake, 13 miles across by seven. Uh, on the north side of the lake uh, is Mount Hermon, and the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. And out of the south side of the lake, the Jordan flows down into the Dead Sea. Now, the Sea of Galilee is surrounded 
by mountains on nearly every side, and it sits 680 feet below sea level, making it the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. And what makes this lake unique, it was always loved by the Jews. In fact, the Jews said the Lord made the seven seas, but the sweetest is the Sea of Galilee. They loved this lake. But uh, what made this lake uh, unique is that because of its geographic uh, uh, realities, there was often violent storms that would occur in a moment because cold air would come down the mountain ridges and through the valleys and hit the warm, moist air at sea level. And in a moment, storms would blow up and violent storms with uh, uh, high winds, sometimes waves becoming higher than 10 feet. This was normal uh, on this sea, but this was no unique storm on this day, or this was a unique storm on this day. Here's what we read. Uh, So they set out, verse 23, as they sailed, he fell asleep. Jesus' humanity comes onto the scene. He preached all day long. We know this from Mark's account. This is the day he preached the parable of the soils and he taught all day long out in a boat away from the shore because the crowds were so big. And he's absolutely exhausted. And Jesus got hungry. He thirsted. He fatigued just like every other human being. In fact, Jesus died just like every human being. I mean, he didn't die in the same manner, but as people die, he really dies. But here we see his humanity as he's sleeping. And it says, and a windstorm came down on the lake. It's interesting. The Greek word for came down on the lake is a meteorological word that refers to cold air descending quickly down a mountain. That's kind of cool in my mind because I like storm chasing and I'm kind of into weather. But here they get this from the Bible. I love that. So Jesus is asleep. This storm comes down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now, let's just not read this as a story that we've heard a thousand times, put yourself in their shoes. Have you ever been in a boat in a huge lake like this in the middle of it? And a terrible thunderstorm, windstorm comes up in a moment? Not so that rain's getting in the boat and you might get seasick, but so that the boat is filling up with water and death is sure for you. You see, it doesn't matter how you swim in the middle of a storm with waves this big being that far out in the lake. And it says they were in danger. Verse 24, they went out and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Jesus is sleeping in the stern with his head on a cushion in the middle of a storm. He's exhausted. He's absolutely exhausted. His disciples, which by the way, don't just think of the apostles. Uh, when he's referring to the 12, he, he'll say the 12 or the apostles. These are followers. It's more than just the 12. But they all come to him and say, Master, Master, we are dying. And then, well, I want to tell you what Mark says on this account. He says, they come and say, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, don't you care about us? 
Do you not know what's happening? It was your idea. You said, let's get into the boat and go to the other side. And now we're dying. Don't you care that we are perishing? What kind of plan do you have, Jesus? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Literally in the Greek, there was a great calm. When a storm stops out at Lake Mina and the wind stops blowing, the waves slowly start to do this. But when Jesus spoke to the wind and to the water, there was a great calm like that. In a second, instant calm. Put yourself in their shoes. A man standing in their boat spoke to a storm and the storm stopped. Now, I maybe get this a little more than the average person because I've been in my truck out in the country in front of a monster storm, even with some of you here. We've been there before, and one of the things I always say is, let's get out of our car and feel how big it is. It's unbelievable how powerful a storm is. In fact, in one thunderstorm, supercell thunderstorm, there's more power, electrical power, than the whole world uses in one year. One measly thunderstorm. But Jesus speaks to it, and there's a great calm. But that calm and that fear doesn't last, doesn't go away for long, because the disciples realize that storm was scary. It was about to kill us physically. But what, is, what actually is more scary than that is the storm outside of our boat isn't nearly as scary as the one who spoke to that storm. He's inside our boat. And that big thing stopped. And so it's no surprise that they were afraid, we see in verse 25. And Jesus says to them, though, after he rebukes the wave, he looks at them and he asks an interesting question. Where is your faith? Where is it? All right. I just ripped the rug of your life out from under you with this storm. Where is your faith? What are you trusting in? They ought to have been okay by this time, right? They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen him heal every sickness that has come before him. They've seen a catch of fish that begin to sink their boat that Jesus caused to happen. They've even seen the widow's son be raised from the dead. He stopped a funeral. In fact, every funeral Jesus went to recorded in the New Testament stops because he heals the dead person. We got our, our next week's sermon. We're going to see it again. But where is their faith? Often, what does Jesus say of his disciples? Ye of little faith. I mean, in fact, we read this story and we just think, oh yeah, they're not doing anything weird. We would do the same things. And yet Jesus, from his perspective, thinks it's crazy. Where's your faith? For real? I didn't say, let's go over to the other side and die in the middle of the lake. I said, let's go to the other side. Jesus asked them a question we need to ask ourselves. And then it says, and they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Good question. That's a good question to ask. You remember it happened when Jesus, or when they catch the fish? Uh, Peter catches all the fish. What does Jesus say? 
or Peter say to Jesus, he says, Lord, away from me, for I am a sinful man. The second he realizes this glory of who Christ is, he says, get away, get back. You're shining too bright, and I'm realizing who I am. In the same similar way, they're afraid. In fact, this has always been this way. All throughout the Old Testament, Abraham described himself as dust and ashes in 1827 when he encountered God. Job humbly said, I've heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. After encountering the pre-incarnate Christ in the person of the angel of the Lord, Samson's father Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. The Israelites trembled and stood at a distance and told Moses, speak to us for yourself and we'll listen, but let not God speak to us or we'll die. Isaiah, when he saw the vision of God in the temple, says, woe is me, for I'm a man of, uh, of uh, unclean lips. He says, damn me. In the light of your glory, in your presence, I am exposed. Ezekiel, after seeing the glorified, exalted Christ, uh, fell on his face. And John, in Revelation 1.17, fell at his feet like a dead man. This is the common response when God reveals something of His glory to people. They recognize who they are. It's happening again to the disciples and they're afraid. You think they would say, oh, life's great. We got one who fixes every problem. We get sick, He'll heal us. Oh, this is awesome. We're not catching fish. Our boat starts to sink with all these fish. This is great. That's not the response. The response is, Ah, I can't handle being in the presence of God as a sinful person. So, there's that account. And they're asking the question, who is this? If they've read the Psalms, they would know the answer. Psalm 89.9 says, You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who stills them? God steals, stills the sea. And then what happens next is even almost scarier. Now, I was trying to think, how could I illustrate this? How have I seen this in my life? And uh, one of the things that happened recently to me about three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, uh, I met my brother and a couple of his friends from his church uh, over by Pier to go bow hunting West River. And we were going to hunt on public land. And if you know anything about hunting on public land when it comes to deer hunting, you got to hunt a long ways away from your truck where you have to park. You can't drive onto public land. You have to walk. And people are lazy. Therefore, if you want to hunt where everyone else hunts, you don't walk very far. But if you want to get to the good spots, you got to get in there. Well, on Lake Oahe, on the West River side, there's a peninsula that goes way out into the lake. It's beautiful country. But where you have to walk in to where we want to hunt is like, it's seven miles to the tip of the peninsula. And my brother and his friends, they get to stay an extra day longer. We're going to just camp on the shore of the lake for a few days, but they got to go in by boat and I had to go in by bike because I'm going to leave a day early and then they're not going to drive me all the way around. I wish they would have. So I'm riding my bike, picture this, on a cattle path. It's walk-in land, so it's just a farmer's land where he has a lot of cows, which you can laugh at me, but cows can be scary when there's 500 of them in the road that you need to go down. So I got my bike, I got my little kid cart behind me where you can fit two kids in it with all my hunting stuff in it, and I'm riding on a cattle path, 
And I'm enjoying the fact that a lot of my ride is downhill. <laughs> but I'm not stupid either. Because <laughs> the further in I go, I keep looking back at the hill I just come down. And I'm thinking, if I go down a hill, i got to go back up a hill. And in two days, i got to turn around and do this again. So I'm going in. I get about three miles in. 500 cows right on the path. I stop. They stop. They're all looking at me and staring at me. And I'm telling myself, I'm not a farmer. I'm a city boy. I'm telling myself, okay, don't act scared. They can sense fear. <laughs> Just ride at them. Just ride at them and they'll get out of your way. And just pretend. Well, I couldn't pretend. I was really afraid, but I did start riding at them. And they reluctantly moved a little bit. I think usually they're pushed around by like pickup trucks or four-wheelers. They weren't real intimidated by my bike. <laughs> so I go through the cows. Once I get by the cows, I look back. The cows are chasing me. But I got a hill, so I make ground and I get away from them. Long story short, it was beautiful country, loved hunting, but there was kind of this dark cloud hanging over the whole time I was there. And that is, by myself, I got to go back out of here. And if I want to hunt that last day, I got to get out of there in the dark. Well, I couldn't sleep that night. By the way, this was like three or four weeks ago when it was 95 degrees during the day, sleeping in a tent. Humidity was high. Couldn't sleep. 2.50 in the morning, I'm like, I'm going. Pack my stuff up. And I got a mile hike to get to my bike to get on the cattle path to ride out. And it's a foggy night, and it's black. It's the blackest night I've ever seen. Night before, stars were everywhere. And I got a little cheap headlamp on my head. And I'm praying to God that thing keeps going. Or I probably just had a heart attack and died. So I'm following my GPS because I tracked where it was. And it takes me forever. I get to my bike finally. A little bit of relief. And I can barely see the little, you know, I'm on one part of the pickup truck path. I just can barely see that because my headlamp's picking up the fog. And the this is horrible. I'm scared to death. I always get a little scared walking out in the dark by myself. I confess. I was scared. Unfamiliar territory. I can't see anything. I can see five feet in front of me, headlamp on, and I'm just praying to God, God, help the cows be down on the other side of the hill. Because I know in like two miles they're coming up. Well, I'm going, and I'm striving to see that path. And I ride a little bit, and then i got to walk it up big hills, obviously. And I start going, and all of a sudden I see glowing eyes. Five yards on each side of me. Black cows, glowing eyes. It was really scary. Okay, this is way too long. The point's not that good. But I get to the truck. Here's what I want you to know. I've never coveted getting to my truck. You've seen my truck before. <laughs> I don't love getting into that thing. I loved getting to my truck. <laughs> I got there. Coyotes are howling. Still pitch black. But it was like refuge. I get my stuff off. Get into the car. Shut the door. And now I'm pitch black in the middle of a truck in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> And I'm thinking, what would really be scary is if another truck pulled up or some, you know, murderer came and started pounding on my truck. You want to talk about terrified? That's where my mind was at this point. All that to say, the disciples just really believed they were going to die. I don't know if you've ever been in a position where you've been that terrified. They believe they're really just escape death by this much. And the second you would expect them to kiss that ground when they get foot on shore, the second their foot hits shore, the scariest man on the face of the earth comes running right 
at them. Come on, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Look at verse 26. They said to the con- they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Mark says he came running at them. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. Stop, picture it for a minute. Okay, let's move on. And he had lived, not lived in a house, but among tombs. So here's a guy that hasn't wore clothes for a long time, and he doesn't live in a house, and he lives among dead people in tombs. Mark 5.5 5 says this, Night and day, imagine, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with, with stones. And when Jesus saw him from afar, he ran and fell down before him. If you lived in this community, you would know about the man who lives up in the graveyard where the tombs are, who doesn't wear clothes, who yells and screams all day long and is bleeding because he's hurting himself and cutting himself. You know, how many children's movies have like a Gargamel? The Smurfs, you know, you got Gargamel up on the hill. Or that lady that lives in that old house that they're convinced that she's a witch or whatever. This isn't a, some fable. This is real life. Up in, The little children trying to go to bed at night hearing screams coming from the mountain. What is that? That's the guy, and Matthew tells us there's actually two of them that live together. This is who this is. Matthew says this on this account. When they came to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Not only do they look scary, they'll kill you. They're fierce. Everyone's scared to go up by those tombs. You don't go visit grandpa up there until these two guys are gone. In fact, if you look at verse um, 29, the parenthetical comment uh, Luke has, he says, for many a time it had seized him, meaning the demons. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So this was a man that was so fierce and dangerous, they put metal chains and shackles on him. And he broke them. This is supernatural power from the demonic world. This is the scariest man I can imagine on this earth running at these disciples who've just already been terrified that evening. But shockingly, what we read When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Every time Jesus... See, demons don't attack Jesus in the New Testament. Demons fall down before Christ, scared to death, and proclaim who he really is. All the power and might this guy has, he's scared of Christ. He recognizes his authority. He says, I beg you, do not torment me. Uh, You remember when Jesus walked in the synagogue in Luke 4, there was a man who had an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In fact, in Matthew's account, what, he sa- what Matthew says is, he says, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? 
The demons know their fate. They know they have no hope. But they know that in Jesus' first coming, they're not going to be sent into the lake of fire. They're going to be sent in the second coming of Christ. And these two men filled with demons see victims and come running at them. And then they get close and go, I'm in the presence of Christ. Have you showed up? They're paranoid. Have you showed up before the allotted time to torment us? And then, verse 30, Jesus asked him, well, before we jump into this, I just want to say this about demon possession. We almost know nothing about demon possession in the Old Testament. We, there's a couple places they maybe allude to it. But when the Son of Man shows up on earth all of a sudden, here you have uh, just explicit, unusual demon possession happening and demons crying out. We're told by Paul that the way they usually work is they come as angels of light. They actually have a really good plan and they deceive you by helping you worship the things of this earth rather than worship Christ and they don't look bad. They look like your cute girlfriend or boyfriend or your job or whatever else. That's much more deceptive, but they get desperate when Jesus shows up. This, they, they just come out onto the scene. And you see this in the Gospels and Acts, and really in the letters you don't see it. And so it's an unusual time. It's going to be usurped. It's even going to be greater, though, right before Christ returns uh, in the last time. So uh, we shouldn't expect this to be the normal way they present themselves to us. It's not that they're not at work. They are at work. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers uh, of uh, d- darkness. That's who we struggle against. We're in a spiritual battle, but this is how they present themselves here. So look at verse 30. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? He said, Legion, for we are many demons, for many demons had entered him. It means thousands. Thousands of demons are in this guy. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and it and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told, told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country and of the garrisons asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into a boat and returned. So the demons begged for mercy, say, let us go into the pigs. He says, fine. Now when the demons were in the two men, they acted in a way that harmed themselves. They acted crazy in a destructive manner, hurting other people, hurting themselves. And as soon as the demons entered the pigs, the pigs rushed to their own crazy destruction, do what they normally wouldn't do. And the saddest thing about this story is it says something about humankind. The garrisons, the people, would rather live with the demoniac in all the oppression of the dark world than have Jesus in their presence. They would rather live lives in the tomb in their own destruction than have Jesus close to them. They didn't ask Jesus to leave because 2,000 pigs died. That's not what the text says. 
when they saw the demoniac sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind, they were terrified. Why? Because there's only one being that is more powerful than angels and demons. And it's God. And they knew that. Angels and demons are smarter than you are. They're more powerful than you are. They have more experience than you have. They've been around since creation, since God created them. They can transfer between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And don't miss it. They bow at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is more powerful than they are. And they recognized it. And in shining in the light of Jesus' power, they want to get him away. They're convicted. They would rather live with the crazy man in the mountains than with Jesus in their land. And one of the commentators says this, a man named Gooding. He says, what a sad comment on man's fallen, unregenerate state it is that a man should feel more at home with demons than with the Christ who has power to cast out demons. And then he says, yet it is so often men would try to help a criminal or a drunkard, or if they should prove incorrigible, want them imprisoned and the other put into a hospital, but they find it embarrassing and somewhat frightening if the criminal is saved by Christ and turned into a sane, wholesome, regenerate disciple. People in Aberdeen want people helped in Aberdeen, but they get a little freaked out if Jesus saves them. And they come to their right mind. Maybe there's even some of you here that are saying, this is too weird for me. Demons, angels, man casting them out. This is, this is too much for me. Maybe you're offended by Christ in this way. You know, Dan showed me this uh, right before I came up here. Front page of the paper. Psychiatrist shortage leaves many without help in Aberdeen. Sad, isn't it? People around us living lives in the dark. Sad, depressed, contemplating suicide. No hope. And maybe when they do hear the hope of Christ, maybe they just say, get that out of here. Sad. But I know God has specifically trained us in this church, many of us, in biblical counseling. We can offer help to real problems. We're going to have another training. Can, can we not be a light in Aberdeen and help this problem? whether they like it's a church turning it around or not. I want you to see how the demoniac responded to Jesus. Verse 39, return to your home. Or <clears throat> Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. I don't know what it would be like to be filled with a thousand demons and have my life be overtaken. I, I can't know that amount of oppression and possession. But I know this, that man had no hope until Jesus showed up. And Jesus shows up and he ends up in his right mind. And there's only one care he has. I want to be with him. He doesn't even say, I want to go do what you do and do your ministry. He wants to be with Jesus. That's a question I ask you this morning. And you know the answer. Do you want to be with him or could you give two rips about him? There's a way to hear all about Jesus and not care to be in his presence. But the first step the first qualification for Christian ministry is this. Do you want to be with Jesus? 
Because this man says he does, and what does Jesus say? You stay. This is a dark land you live in. These are people that need to know what I did for you. You stay. How much theology, how much theology does he know? Almost nothing. You want to know what he knows? He ran into Jesus and mercy happened to him. And he came into his right mind. And the spiritual problem he had was taken care of. The storm was a physical problem which shone Christ's glory and revealed to the disciples their spiritual problem. We have two problems. You're going to die and I'm going to die. It's a fact. Jesus shows up and he has power over death and he has power over spiritual brokenness and sin. I just want to leave you with a couple verses. Listen to Ephesians 2. You want to know that the Bible actually says you lived kind of like the demoniac with the dead, with the demonic? Ephesians 2.1 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses are in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses like this demoniac, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Some of you right now, the present state of your life is living in darkness, rejecting Christ, rejecting the truth, rejecting the light. Do you want to be with Christ? Do you see yourself? That's your only hope. I want to leave you with 1 John 5.18. Right at the end of this book that John wrote to help believers know that they were truly saved, here's what he says. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now that doesn't mean Christians don't sin. What it means is this. Everyone who is born of God doesn't keep on sinning. It's the tense of how John writes it. He's saying before you were born again, you were in this cycle that you don't even think about it. That's all you do. Sin, 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 sin. But when you're born of God, a battle begins. And repentance starts. And clinging to Christ as your only hope in light of this struggling battle happens. But then he says this. Listen. This is the last thing. But... He who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Clear declaration of Christ's divinity. And then He says this weird thing. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Here's what He's saying. He's saying the whole world is under the power of the evil one chasing idols. They think they're free, but their idols actually enslave them. Their sin enslaves them. But he's saying, but you who are born of God, you're protected from the evil one. You're given eternal life. You're in Christ.
So beware of leaving the only one that can help you. Beware of idols. Don't go live like they live. Understand that He is your only hope. So how do you respond to Jesus' presence? Are you like the disciples? Do you know you're sinful, but you don't know about God's mercy, so you kind of get away? Are you like the demons who just say, don't kill me yet? Show mercy for a little bit of time? Sometimes we can pray like that. I really don't care to spend eternity with you. Just make this circumstance a little better for me. Are you like the Gerasenes who would rather live in their darkness and death and have the demoniac as their neighbor? Or are you like the demoniac, a person helpless to save himself, whose only hope is encountering Christ? Where is your faith? See, the disciples on the boat didn't think Jesus had a good plan. Probably shouldn't have gone to the other side, right? They doubted his power. They doubted his protection. They doubted his personhood. They began to realize who he was more. Do you believe in his pardon? Do you believe that Jesus is your only hope? Father, I pray that all of us would cling to Christ. None of us can solve our two biggest problems, which is death under physical death and spiritual death under the wrath of God for our sins. And you came to be sin for us, to take our sins on yourself so that you could take them away. And you rose from the dead to be a guarantee that we also will one day raise from the dead and live eternally with Christ. Lord, help us believe that Jesus is our only hope. Help us want to be in the presence of Christ. Amen.